Charles Drew, Charlie to pretty much everyone, was born in 1904. He grew up in Foggy Bottom, Washington DC, just a few blocks away from the White House, in an area that was racially segregated, but there were lots of middle-class black families and white families, and Washington DC didn't have the same problems that they had in the South. Charles and his siblings, Joseph, Elsie and Nora, were encouraged by their parents to be good citizens. Academic education was important. Hard work was laudable. Personal and civic responsibility, essential. And Charlie tried to be all of those things. His grades weren't great, but that didn't hold him back. At 12, he started selling papers on the street corner and within a year employed six other boys. Later, he was a lifeguard at the local swimming pool and worked construction jobs during the summer. Charles was a great athlete. At school, he was amongst the best. He was voted best athlete, most popular student, and student who had done the most for the school. He wanted to be an electrical engineer, and he was bright, but not astounding. His grades alone might not have gotten him there, but he was a good boy. One you could be proud of. He wouldn't get to become an electrical engineer, though. Instead, Charlie would become the father of a process and of an institution that would go on to save millions of lives. Perhaps it was for the best, then. And he would fight to make sure that the lives he saved weren't just white lives. You see, Charlie was black, and his work was colourblind. Other people weren't, though. This is Intersect from Communicating Science. You're listening to episode two, We All Bleed Red. We all bleed red. Charlie's older sister suffered from tuberculosis. In 1920, right at the end of the influenza pandemic that swept the globe after World War I, killing something approaching 100 million people, Elsie caught it, and she got sick, and then sicker, and she died. The Drew family moved to Arlington in Virginia, just across the Potomac River looking for healthier surrounds. 2505 First Street South, a protected building now, with a sign nestled in an overgrown bush reminding passers-by of the family that once lived there. But a modest home, back then. Charles still went to high school in Washington, D.C., passing by the White House each day, that place that was built by black slaves and the place that they would be emancipated by President Lincoln just some 40 years before Charles was born. His younger sister Eva was born there, in Arlington. When he graduated from his high school, Charles went to college and took a course in biology. The time he'd spent at hospital with Elsie as she died, and when he was admitted himself to treat an injury he had suffered on the sports field, it had planted a seed in his mind of medicine. 
athletic scholarship had gotten him to college, and long after he had changed the world, many still remembered him best as a star on the field. It was enough to get him some work whilst he saved for medical school, but segregation meant that there were only a few places for people like him at medical schools. Harvard was a primarily white university, but they had some places. Howard was where black medical students went. But Howard said no, he didn't have the credits he'd need. Harvard said yes, but wanted him to wait a year. Charlie didn't want to wait, so he went to Canada. Leaving his family behind to follow his passion, some 600 miles north to McGill University, where things weren't so divided. And he studied, and kept on with his athletics, and he was a star, but now it wasn't just his physical achievements. He started to excel in his academics. He won prizes, and he won fellowships, and was beaten by only one person in his graduating class of 1933. He interned at the Montreal General Hospital and found an interest in treating patients suffering from shock, but Canada wasn't his home. So he asked again if the medical universities would have him, and this time Howard said yes. So Charles returned to Washington, D.C. Before long, Charles was working with eminent surgeons. He had been noticed. He was intelligent, committed, and willing to work. It wasn't long before Charlie was awarded a fellowship to work at New York's Presbyterian Hospital whilst working on his Doctorate of Medical Science at Columbia University. There, Charles met John Scudder. They worked together on Charles' dissertation, opening New York's first experimental blood bank. And there, too, he met Minnie Lenore Robbins in April, who would become his wife in September. In 1940, they had their first daughter of the four children they would eventually have, who they called Bibi. Which they thought was fitting, since it was the blood bank, or the BB, which had brought them together. A big year already, Charles was awarded his doctorate, and he became the first black American ever to do so. And 1940 was to become even bigger for Charlie. Britain was under attack from Germany and they needed blood plasma. And Charles knew about blood and about patients in shock. Blood transfusion was already an established practice, but getting healthy donors to the soldiers that needed them wasn't an option. Blood had to travel. Britain was far away and American blood would spoil on the journey, unless he had a solution. And he did. He knew about blood, and he knew about banking it. So Charles drew up a blueprint for a solution, and the Blood for Britain project was born. So he went back to Howard, back to his home. But not for long. In September of 1940, he was recalled to New York. Blood for Britain needed a director. A director like Charles. He coordinated efforts, ensured the blood plasma was tested and was safe. And the program saved lives. British lives. They collected blood. And they collected blood. But the army insisted that they only collect blood from white Americans. The Brits wouldn't mind. So Charles couldn't even contribute to the bank he had created. The program ended in 1941 as America started to think about joining the war itself. It would need American blood. And people took notice. 
they noticed how important blood was, and not just in war. And they noticed that Charles was the man for the job. So Charles was asked to set up blood banking at home. And he did. And the American Red Cross Blood Bank was born. Charles invented mobile blood donation stations, which he called bloodmobiles. And he criticised the practice of segregation. And they listened, though the black blood was kept as segregated as its former owners. Drew campaigned for the desegregation of blood. It was unscientific. Not all blood was equal, it was true, but the lines of segregation had to be by type. A, B, AB, O, and the then recently discovered rhesus factor. But not by race. He knew segregation. He knew it well. And he knew that it shouldn't be allowed to apply here. In his own words, from a speech in 1944, it is fundamentally wrong for any great nation to willfully discriminate against such a large group of its people. One can say quite truthfully that on the battlefields, nobody is interested in where the plasma comes from when they are hurt. It is unfortunate that such a worthwhile and scientific bit of work should have been hampered by such stupidity. But Charles Drew would never see the end of blood segregation. He would die in 1950, the morning after a long day and night in the surgery, still fatigued, driving in the crisp morning air of a Saturday in April, halfway to the annual free clinic in Tuskegee in Alabama that he always attended. With three colleagues in the car, he swerved into a field, and the car flipped three times, and he was pinned, and he was hurt and rushed to a hospital in Burlington in North Carolina with few black beds and only white physicians. It was the South, after all. And despite the myths, he was nevertheless treated for his crushed chest and for his head injuries and for the internal bleeding and for the blockage which prevented blood from getting to his heart. And he was not denied a life-saving blood transfusion, but denied a blood transfusion that would have killed him even more quickly than his injuries. There's lots more to tell about Charles' life. Between setting up the Red Cross blood bank and his death, Charles accomplished many things. He taught a generation of black physicians. He campaigned long and hard for racial equality. He became the first black man to sit as an examiner on the American Board of Surgeons. In fact, Charlie was the first black man to achieve a lot of things. Far too many achievements for me to list here. But amidst it all, he saved lives. Lives of every colour. Racial segregation wouldn't end in the US until 1968. Some say it has never truly gone away. Perhaps more should remember the legacy of Charles Drew. The Intersect podcast is a short series of stories told each week about the places where science intersects with life. Intersect is produced by Communicating Science, bringing science to your daily commute. 
find interesting science news twice a day on Facebook and Twitter by searching for at CommuterSci. That's Commuter S-C-I. If you've got an interesting person you'd like us to talk about, let us know. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or via your podcatcher of choice. Music for Intersect comes from Poddington Bear. You've been listening to Intersect, Episode 2. I'm Nate. Thanks for listening.